All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we have together as a church family, even if virtually. Would you please bless it? Would you please, from your word now, uh, teach us more about who you are and who you call us to be? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again, everybody, to Current. My name is David. Years ago, I went through a bit of a dry spell in my spiritual walk. And when I had opportunity to ask a moderately well-known Christian teacher about it, I jumped at it and I asked him, have you ever experienced a dry spell in your walk with God? And without skipping a beat, he said, no, never. He had always had a flourishing, you know, vibrant relationship with God. And then he pressed it further saying, and if you're not expecting God to be there, then that's all you're going to get. And as you could imagine, I was all the more distressed in that moment. But I thought about it after that. And I realized while I was happy for him, that I just couldn't relate to that. That I, you know, just it just felt like, you know, while, while I could see that there's times in which, you know, my lack of faith or maybe there's some barriers in my life like like sin that could keep keep me from feeling like God is like present in my life. That the the fact of the matter is there are times when it's just it'll feel like God is is distant and and that's true of, of other Christians. So I was thinking about that and I, and I found an opportunity to ask my my dad about it. Same question, which is really where I should have started asking my dad, who's not only he not only gives me his fatherly wisdom, but he's he was a pastor for many years, started a few churches. I asked him the question. I said, "Dad, have you ever felt, you know, have you ever had a dry a spell in your your spiritual walk?" And I'll never forget his response. He just out came this loving chuckle as if he was like reliving all these past experiences with, with my question in mind. And he said, son, of course. He said, he said, you know, when you do, just realize you're also in really good company because just about every single character in the book of the Bible experienced dry seasons in their walk with God. And he said, and what I would say to you if, if, you know, when you're in this place is just know that you can lean into God and trust him. You know, it's something I knew when I was a little guy, he said to me, but you know, I now know this side of, of just a lot of life experience, a lot of hard things, which you know, son, I've, I've gone through, that God is someone to trust. He will always be there with you and he's always for you. He'll bring you through. That helps us get into today's topic because today we pick up in chapter 2 of the book of Esther and pick up on really one of the high-level themes of the book, and that is God is always at work even when it seems like he is absent. If you were here when we kicked off the series a few weeks back, you know that I mentioned the book of Esther is the only book that not only doesn't mention God, God's name, it doesn't even reference him. The book of Solomon also doesn't ever say the name of God, but at least peripherally references. In, in the book of Esther, there's no mention or reference to God. And yet that has to be deliberate. And what we're going to see here in our story today, now that all these events are starting to play out in such a way, that no, it, it's absolutely clear that God is working even when it seems like he's distant. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 15, reading to chapter 3, verse 7. And we're going to see in this text why we can trust God even when it seems like he is absent. So Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tabeth. 
in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down to pay or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Well, what we see here first is that God is always at work, even when circumstances are hard. We pick up in the story, the first part of, of what we just read, and we see that Esther is gaining favor left and right. It says a couple times, Esther gained favor. She gained approval. She became the queen. But let's make no mistake about it. She was a concubine. She was taken forcibly. She was exploited. Often when the, the story of the book of Esther is, is retold in American churches today, it's kind of given as a sana, in a sanitized version. Like, you know, an American idol was happening, a Persian idol where all these women were routed up and it was a bit of a beauty contest. And No, it was terrible. It was, it was horrible in every regard. These are ugly, painful events. She was a concubine. But what's more, she was also fearing for her life living under th threat of death because she was a Jew. Now that's why we see here in verse 20 that Mordecai continued to tell her to keep her family background and nationality secret. So could you just imagine being Esther, how much stress she was under, the pressure, the pain she was feeling? And then there's Mordecai. You know, he, he hears about a plot to kill King Xerxes and, able to, and is able to thwart it, and yet he's barely acknowledged. Mordecai risks his own life, you know, to save this dishonorable king, and yet is not even rewarded. 
what we see here, the author is showing us, is that God is at work even when circumstances are hard. The author is setting up the scene that God will ultimately deliver his people. But let's make no mistake, this is not an easy story. This is not comfortable. And in fact, this is important for us to consider because there's no promise in the Bible that says if we follow God, our life will become easy or easier. There's no promise in the Bible that if we follow God, our life will become comfortable or more comfortable. There's actually plenty of of Christian teaching out there, uh, a teaching called uh, the prosperity gospel that kind of uh, puts this out there. And it's easy for any of us to believe, even if we're not attending a mega church televangelist uh, prosperity gospel church. Uh, It's a teaching that if you have faith, if you have enough faith, and if you do enough good works, then God will give you your heart's desires. He'll give you money in your bank. He'll help all your relationships to thrive. He will bless your health. Your happiness will abound. That's what it means when God says, they say, that he wants to bless you. The only problem with that is that's not what the biblical word to bless means. And what's more, that's not how the original audience would have ever understood the word to bless to mean. I think we tend to forget that it's only until recently uh, in human history that we've had things like antibiotics available to us or the ability to have our teeth worked on if we have cavities. I mean, we live in a life where it's like, you know, even just a couple of generations ago, if you had a toothache or if you if you got a, a bacterial infection, you were in a world of trouble. And yet what we can do from our positions of, of creature comfort is read the American dream into the text. But that's just not there. I recently uh, was listening to a Christian speaker who sadly has passed away, a guy named Ravi Zacharias, great guy, uh, who was born in India, raised in India. And he was talking about how uh, the question that most modern Westerners will ask when it comes to God is, is, is this question, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? He said, that's the question I get when he's out speaking on the road in modern Western countries all the time. But he hardly ever got that question in the East growing up or in different parts of the, of the world that, that aren't the modern West. And he said, it's interesting because there, in those places, suffering is almost just to be expected, part of the deal. And yet it's in the modern West, he says, where we have all these creature comforts where we're like, well, how come life's not more comfortable and working out better for me in that regard? Look, it's you don't have to, again, follow a televangelist uh, preaching prosperity gospel to believe the idea that God is only at work when things are good. That God and his ways are good provided our life is good. Jesus said, say in in Matthew 10, on account of me, brother will betray brother. Sister will betray sister. On account of me, you will face times of being hated. You will be persecuted if you're a follower of mine. Last week, we looked at the words of of the Apostle Peter to the early church who said, you're going to live this life as foreigners and exile. There's place after place after place in the scriptures that say, don't be surprised when hardship and suffering come your way. In fact, brace yourself for it. And yet, when hard circumstances come upon us, they can easily rock us. Why is that? Well, it's easy to believe that God is only good when things are good, or he's only at work when things are going well, or the way we would script them ourselves. I mentioned earlier that I was experiencing a dry spell 
in my relationship with God years ago. Well, that was actually during the startup phase of getting current up and launching. There's a lot of uncertainty during that time. There's a lot of challenges and, and hardship. Some of you know that my health was giving me especially a hard time back then. Um, I, I could hardly walk. There's a, a bunch of things happening in my life that I, I really got to the place where I was like, I don't know how, to, how I'm going to keep going. And I realized underneath it all, it started to kind of just work inside me something. I was just like, well, what is that? And I realized I had under, underneath it all a bit of frustration, a bit of bitterness, maybe even resentment ultimately directed at God. Because when I dug down deeper, I realized what I was doing was like, hey, God, I'm doing this for you, starting a church for you, doing your work, and yet things are getting harder. And it's not clear how things are going to work. How could that be? How, how could you allow that? And you know what? It was actually in the midst of that time that God gave me a great gift. And you know, that gift came by way of not taking away that pain. In fact, it was in the midst of that pain that I had the gift of realizing, oh my goodness, my faith was more built upon life being comfortable and easy or knowing what was going to happen to me. And, you know, I was really struck by that when, when that when that realization came upon me. But even more, I experienced the gift of God meeting me in that space and not with a judgmental, you know, shaming heart, but with grace and love. Perhaps some of you are now in a place where, where I was. You might be working through something that's really hard. It's been really hard and, and you're either consciously or even subconsciously maybe upset, bitter, angry, frustrated with God. Or maybe you're bitter, upset, frustrated with the idea of a God that could allow that to happen in your life because a certain relationship hasn't worked out the way you hoped it would or that you haven't gotten the job that you always hoped you would get or a health issue hasn't resolved for you, you haven't found relief in that or you haven't found a place to live that you just really want. But friends, I could just say as someone who's who's been there, uh, humbly I'd suggest to you that, that sometimes, sometimes actually, there's a gift to be had in that space. Recently, in our Alpha group, a group here at Current exploring the Christian faith, we had a wonderful discussion around that big question, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? And the idea came up of like, what do you make of suffering and, and this idea that sometimes pain can be in our lives and, and this and that. And two of the guys in particular were kind of uh, were processing this idea of, oh my goodness, yeah, I can see how pain is actually, it has actually been a great gift for me throughout my life. That if not for pain, I would be in situations that I, I, I'm ultimately glad I'm not in right now. And it was pain that gave me a wake-up call or pain that ultimately led me to have a transformation in my life that I never otherwise would have experienced. And as they processed these things, as a Christian pastor, I was thinking, oh man, if only more Christ followers could believe this. Because that's what the scriptures teach. Uh, there's a lot of pain in the world. There's a lot of pain in our worlds. And it's easy in the midst of that to throw up our fists at God. But there's no promise in the Bible that life will be easy for the follower of God. Jesus said, in many respects, it will become less easy and less comfortable when you follow me. But what we do see here in the book of Esther 
and plenty of other places in the book of the Bible, is that God can and always continues to work even in the midst of hard circumstances at the individual level, at the societal level. So friends, if that's you, if you're wrestling with where is God in the midst of something that's really hard, know that he's always at work, even when circumstances are hard. I'd almost go to say, especially when circumstances are hard. Seek him, lean into him, be real with him, and he will meet you there and bring you through. That's the first that that God is always at work even when it, 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 during hard circumstances. But second thought here is God is always at work even when it might otherwise seem hopeless. God is always at work even when situations might seem otherwise hopeless. Mordecai thwarts the assassination attempt, and he's hardly acknowledged for his efforts, not even rewarded. And yet, who does get elevated? Who does get promoted during this time? But his mortal enemy, Haman. Now, Mordecai and, and Haman didn't know each other personally, but we see here that Haman was described as an Agagite. And if you, if you, if you look back at the, in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll actually see that the Agagites were sworn enemies of the Jews. They just despised the Jews and just wanted to kill them, wipe them off the face of the earth. And it doesn't take many sentences after Haman's dis, uh, introduction to us to see that he wants the same. So it's no wonder that Mordecai refused to bow down to Mordecai and show him that respect. And it's no wonder that Haman in turn, upon hearing that Mordecai would not bow down, that he didn't want to just kill Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. So Haman had the lot cast to determine what, when fate would have him exterminate the Jews. And the lot fell months and months later. Uh, what a crazy turn of events here. I mean, imagine if you were Mordecai. Right? I mean, the ups and downs, the emotional roller coaster of what's going on. The beginning of our chapter, he's like anxious about Esther having been just snatched away from him. And then he has the opportunity to kind of hear about an assassination plot and he's able to like thwart that. He's probably figuring, well, maybe this is going to come to some good. And yet it doesn't come to some good. He's hardly even recognized. And worst of all, his mortal enemy, this guy named Haman, who's just nothing but trouble, is put into a position of great power over him. We've been trying our best to see our stories in this ancient story. And what we're doing here is seeing that, you know, when our life is hard, we can see that God is at work. But you know what, friends? We cannot compare. Our situations, as hard as they might be, cannot compare to what Mordecai, and for that matter, Esther were facing. Right? I mean, they were facing genocide. It's incredible. Their situation was absolutely, utterly hopeless. Everything was stacked against them, and they were essentially powerless in the face of all of it. And yet, what is the author here showing us? Showing us that God is always at work, even when it might otherwise seem hopeless. But here's what's important. Here's what I really want us to, to kind of sit with for a moment, is the fact that we are right now in Esther 2 and Esther chapter 3. Mordecai and Esther do not know what we can know if we flip over a few pages and read the rest of the story. Esther and Mordecai didn't have the answers. They didn't know where deliverance would come, if it would come. And I think that's important for us to consider because you and I might be in Esther 2 and 3 right now. 
You might not be experiencing Esther 6 when deliverance ultimately comes. You might Your story might be in Esther 2 in chapter 3, and you're in a lot of hardship. You're feeling a lot of pain, frustration, tiredness. It's incredibly hard. But friends, you know what the story shows us? Even when life seems hopeless, God gives us a hope and power available nowhere else. Because apart from God, hope is at best wishful thinking. You know, a positive mind trick to just kind of make the best of a hard situation. But in God, there's a hope that can and does ground us no matter what life throws at us. Mordecai was facing hopeless injustice. He had complete lack of trust in the leadership and was absolutely powerless to make a difference in his own right. But he was following a God who holds it all in his hands, including the actions of bad actors and a, and, and a bad system of injustice. The book of Esther shows us that in the outworking of his plan, God uses even the evil of humankind for good. God did not make King Xerxes drunk at that festival. God did not make King Xerxes in his drunken super summon Queen Vashti to be displayed in an immodest way. God did not make King Xerxes promote the vile Haman to this position. And yet, God allowed these wicked actions to ultimately fulfill a purpose according to his greater plan. And so we find assurance in the truth that no other person or system, no matter how evil it is or they are, can defeat God's plan in our life, no matter what they have done to you or will do to you. I'm absolutely blown away by Mordecai's faith here, how he remained faithful and hopeful in the, faith, in the, in, in the face of such hopeless situations. But friends... We can do so all the more because we have Jesus. We have the same Jesus who said, on account of me, brother will betray brother, sister will betray sister. On account of me, people will hate you and persecute you. We have the same Jesus who came into this world to himself be betrayed, hated, persecuted when he deserved it in no way whatsoever. You know, sometimes we deserve what happens to us, the pain that we feel. Jesus didn't deserve it in any way, and yet he experienced suffering and hardship infinitely greater than we could even imagine. That's what the cross is all about. On the cross, he died for the sins of the world, for all those who all the, all the sins of those who had put their faith in him, to bring us back into relationship with God, to restore our brokenness, and to give us life. Because the promise of the gospel is not that life will be easy or comfortable without suffering. The promise of the gospel is that, if, is that we follow the one who faced infinitely greater suffering for us. And that we can know with certainty that he's with us no matter what we're facing. Because on the cross, God proved once and for all that he is with us even when it seems like he might be absent. He is working. We follow a God who understands suffering, and not from afar, but intimately, personally, and indeed faced the worst suffering that any of us could ever face. He took it upon himself, which means we can know that he is always at work even when things are hard and even when things seem hopeless. 
In fact, we can even see and find the gift in the midst of it all, knowing that he's working things for good. And often that is in us and through us. So friends, if this is you today, you're facing hard situations, you're frustrated, you're tired, maybe resentful, know that you can trust God. If he seems distant, know that he is there and he is always at work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Esther and Mordecai, how real and raw it is. Thank you because our stories are very real and raw. Lord, would you help us have faith and hope like they did when they didn't even have Jesus, when they didn't even have the assurance of what you ultimately would do for them and for us on the cross through your son. Father, would you help us cling to you all the more during hard times? And I want to pray especially for our sisters and brothers right now who are listening and, and are, are in just really hard times, just hard situations where it feels like things are hopeless. Would you especially minister to them now? Would you draw, draw them to yourself and help them feel your presence? And for those who have never received you today, I pray that they would even do so now, receiving what you did for them on the cross, the forgiveness of sins and life forever with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's pass things back over to continue worship through song.